I'm so thankful for the ministry of music uh, this whole week with Pastor Chad leading us um, to be able to be instructed in that way. One of the things that I've learned in pastoral ministry is one of the joys of music ministry is oftentimes your titles, your propositions, even if you ask your people the next week what you preached on, if, even if you're preaching expositionally, will be forgotten. Um, but they'll remember the song they sang. And so thematically, if the one who's leading it is linking it to the text, it really is helpful. And I used to get kind of annoyed at that when people wouldn't remember what I preached because I just thought it was like, why would you not remember? It was awesome, right? <laughs> but, uh, and it's not, it's not. But yet, I'm thankful, as God has grown me, to realize what needs to be, um, be remembered is the word of truth, and God does it in multiple ways. One of those is by the reading and preaching of Scripture. Uh, the other way is through music, and uh, there is a reason why constantly the Scriptures remind us uh, to encourage, exhort, and uh, remind each other of the truth of the text of Scripture by song. And so we have been instructed, and every time I've come up, I've been thankful that you have already been preached at, and you have been preaching at each other by the singing, and so, so thankful. I entitled this section of the text in Ruth 3, Don't Be Petrified. I did it because oftentimes when life decisions come our way, we have a tendency to kind of freeze up. We have a tendency to look at all of the options that are before us, and then because there are some viable options, not just one viable option, we have a tendency just to like be petrified like a statue. And uh, petrified things don't move. Petrified things stay in a stagnant position. They're there to observe. They're not necessarily good for action. Alistair Begg says this about this section of the text, which I think is helpful. He says, you cannot deal with all the implications and eventualities of a course of action before you embark on a course of action. Meaning, you can't figure out all the what-ifs, right? If she waits until she had... All the details, she would have not gone ahead. Speaking of Naomi and Ruth, it is not uncommon to find well-meaning believers who, fr frankly, have made very little progress in their Christian life. They are safe. They are under control. There is not very much of them that says, I have trusted in God. I went out on a limb. Because all of their lives, they are spending their time in the waiting room. They want details before they're willing to trust God. This is where we are in Ruth chapter 3. As the narrative unfolds, remember where we have come. There was no house or bread in the house of bread in Bethlehem. The Lord had returned bread to the famine-stricken lands of Bethlehem, right? He had visited his people once again. At the end of chapter 1, it was the beginning of barley season. Remember, I, I geeked out about it. about it. I don't know if you did, but I did, right? And then in chapter 2, when Ruth says to Naomi, I'm going to go out to the fields and I'm going to go glean. And Naomi says, go ahead and, and, and hopefully you'll find favor, Ruth says. Hopefully I find favor with someone. And she does. She happens upon the field of Boaz, right? Like I didn't have one of the Dennis and Caitlin's happening upon the field of Boaz moments, but I did have one today. My son and I were walking back from uh, doing something and on, on our way back to the room, or no, it was on our way to the volleyball courts. A young man was carrying a big thing of ice cream. All in. And I said, what are you doing? And he said, I, this is free ice cream. It's day old. I'm taking it to the guy's dorm. I said, really? 
I said, can I have one? They said, he said, sure. So we each took one. I just happened to be upon the field of ice cream. It was, gr- <laughs> it was glorious, right? Now I say that not to mock what's going on because for Dennis and Caitlin, it was a big thing, $12,000. For me, it was ice cream. They were both from the hand of a good God. Who cares about the details of how big it is or how small it is? It's the little things and the big things. His fingerprint is all over it. That's the point of the text. And when we are God's children, and when by God's grace, we take the steps, even if it's wrong steps at times, we confess them and we move on, but we continue to do with integrity the things that we know God has called us to do. You know what he will do? He will direct us, and he will use each of those things. And he doesn't want us to just stand still, because he's interested in using us, not just for our purposes, but for his. And so within this text, he lays out this truth for us, to not be petrified. Don't be paralyzed by your circumstances, but rather let God work through them. And so my proposition, as the outline will unfold, is simply this. Make wise choices. By no means within this text is saying, go ahead and mess up your life, and then God will fix it. Okay? Now, God will. He'll take the mistakes that we make, if we're his children, and direct them, if we confess them, and as he uses them. Who here in this room cannot speak of God taking the mess that we made and making things glorious out of them? We all can if you've been saved for some time. But that's not the point of the text. The point of the text is Naomi, Elimelech, and all of these people, they were normal people, and they made normal choices. Some of them were good, some of them were bad. But God, again, orchestrated and used all of these things. And what you and I are called to do is to make wise choices, make biblical ones, but commit all of the decisions that we make to our trustworthy God. Don't be petrified. Don't be paralyzed. Don't be like coming to a situation and and maybe there's multiple forks in the road and you're like, I don't know what to do, so I forget it. I'm just going to go take a nap, right? I don't know what to do because I'm going to just stand here. Too many Christians are paralyzed. They sit at a fork in the road and they've been sitting there for decades. Stop it. God in his grace and by his gospel has given you everything you need in Christ Jesus. And his desire is to use you for his ultimate purposes and for all of his glory. And we see this flesh out in the life of Naomi and Ruth, particularly in Naomi, again in chapter 3. And so let's look there in 3 as we work through these three rich truths that God, number one, can use the decisions of others, which he will, using Naomi in Ruth's life. God desires, secondly, to use us to walk in integrity before him, A through 13. And then God can use the kindness of another. We'll see that fleshed out in Boaz. Look at verse 1 through 7. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Let me make a little caveat, because my wife made mention that I said it twice earlier. I made a mistake in a statement that I made. I can't go back and listen to it right now, or I haven't done it. But earlier in chapter 1, the word for hesed, loving kindness that we talked about, is actually translated in 1.8 if you look at it. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly that's the word hesed there, with you. And then I linked hesed to rest, but what I meant to do is link the idea of hesed, the loving kindness of God, leading us to rest, okay? So the word hesed is not the word rest in our English. It's the word kindly, God dealing kindly with us. And as his loving kindness is being fleshed out through the life of Naomi and Ruth, as they interact and they meet Boaz, what we find in the narrative of three is this is exactly what Naomi says 
as God's hesed love has been upon them, and Naomi starts to recognize and see the handiwork of God at the end of chapter 2 when she says, oh, he's one of our redeemers. She is beginning to start to see the fingerprints that she did not see in the beginning of the narrative. She sees that the loving kindness of God may have actually been upon her and may have continued to be upon her when she thought that all the options were exhausted. Remember earlier in chapter 1? He starts to see that it fleshes out. And so Naomi says, as the mother-in-law to Ruth, my daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you, that there be this completion and, an, and, a, and a conclusion to all of these things? And then she goes on and says, is not Boaz our relative, with whose young woman you were? Again, earlier, uh, Boaz had told Ruth to follow his young servants, young women, and to glean with them. See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Verse 3. Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies, then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, all that you said, I will do. Kind of an interesting narrative. Like, this is probably not the conversation that a mother and a daughter are going to have tonight as they go back to their cabin. My guess is you're not going to be going into justification or you're not going to go out to the barn or you're not going to go to a loop or wherever you are. And your mom's going to go, hey, listen, let me just tell you, my daughter, I want you to go to the next room. And I want you to observe where that young man lays down. This is not like Match.com going on here in the sense of what we're talking about, right? It's kind of an odd narrative. But yet what we see is that Naomi is kind of trying to put the pieces together She's probably not processing it the way that she should have, but she, this is the way she processed it. And in, this, in that sense, she gives these instructions. And there's several instructions there. I wish I had time to get into all of it. But she tells Na uh, Ruth, do the things that you can. Look there in verse 3, right? He goes, look, it's barley season. It's, they're, they're going to go and winnow on the threshing floor. Again, I wish I had time to talk about that. Let me just touch on it really quick. But they would oftentimes harvest the grain. And then outside of the city somewhere, wherever the west wind would blow the most, they oftentimes would have some kind of stone surface that was elevated. Kind of like that nasty hole on mini golf, you know what I'm talking about? The one where it should just go down and it should go so you can get a hole in one, but all around it, it's like mounded up, whoever designed that thing. You know what I'm talking about? Like, somebody's sick. Who did that? But anyways, <laughs> that's the idea. You, it's kind of a mounded up spot, and at the top, there would be a rock area, and the men and the workers would go out, and after they take all of their harvest, they would oftentimes thresh it. They would hit it against the ground, and then they would throw it up, and why they would throw it up would they be the grain would fall because it's heavy, and the chaff would be blown up, and the west wind would come and push it away. And so they would do this, and then they would collect the grain, and they would set that to one side, and all the unedible, unusable stuff would just go away, right? And so they would pile that up. This is this idea of a threshing floor. And oftentimes during that time, when they were, when they were getting their product all together, there would be thieves, just like we have thieves today, who would come and steal some of the final product to take for themselves, and so this is the time of, 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 of season. And oftentimes, either the servants and sometimes even the landowners would sleep as men. They would eat and sleep as men on the threshing floor so that if somebody were to come to try to take it, there would be somebody there to defend them or defend the product. 
This is what's going on. Naomi knows this. How does she know it? Well, because she's a Jew. She's lived in Bethlehem, right? She's been out of the country for some time. She's back. She knows the routine, right? It was the beginning of barley season. Now it's nearing the end, and now they're harvesting. This is this language. And so she says in verse 3 to Na- uh, Ruth, Wash, therefore, anoint yourself, put on your cloak, go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known. She tells Ruth first and foremost, and we can get into a lot of stuff. Like, is this like dating again 101? Like, girls, before you go out on a date, take a shower, right? Probably good advice. That's not what's going on, though, right? He's just, she's saying, you, there's certain things you're responsible for, Ruth. Do this. Even as a poor woman, she could, she could wash, right? Even as, a, as a, a, a woman who's widowed, she could take care of some of the things that she can. She could put on some perfume, right? Some ointment that makes her smell a little bit better, right? And so she does what she can, and she does what, what Naomi instructs her to do. And then she says, go down to the threshing floor, but don't make yourself known to the men until they have finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, take careful and observe, right, the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. There's so much, um, there's so much discussion about that little expression, okay? We'll talk about it here in a little bit as we get going. But let me just put it right at the onset. There's nothing immoral going on. How do I know this? The text tells us that Boaz is what? A worthy man. He's noble, The text actually tells us later, Boaz is going to say it about Ruth, that she is worthy and she's noble. This is a woman of integrity. They're not doing anything shady. It's in the middle of a very public place. Okay, there's all this discussion about all this other stuff. I don't have time to get into it. Again, if you want to listen to it, um, I'll leave our website, and I did did walk through that text together. But within this section, what we find is that Naomi just takes the things that she knows— things that she thinks are best, and she moves and is not petrified. She actually moves and makes choices, and she calls uh, Ruth to do these things. The end of the text is important in 5, where it says that after she has told all these things, what the reply of Ruth comes, and Ruth simply says, all that you say, I will do, right? Ruth, is, Ruth, Ruth trusts her mother-in-law. She knows that her mother-in-law is not going to put her into a position that is going to cause her some kind of harm. And so the text then unfolds further. Look, Six, so she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and laid down. Right? We're talking about this one truth that God can use the decisions of others. This is what's happening. It's not Ruth's plan. It's Naomi's. But Ruth trusts Naomi. God has providentially placed Ruth in her life This is a woman who knows God. This is a woman who has taught Ruth about the Lord. And she takes the instructions that Naomi gives to her. And not only does she agree to do it, but she actually follows through with it. Now, a couple notes. The observing and watching of Boaz is important. Because what is about to transpire is, uh, is absolutely necessary that Ruth does not mess up and miss where Boaz lays down. Okay, you get the implication, okay? And so the observing is important because these men oftentimes, again, at the end of the day, would take their food and take their drink and they would eat. The language of the fact of them eating and drinking has the idea of being fully fully satisfied. You know, it's like a long day of work, threshing on the threshing floor and coming to a place where they finally come to a place of exhaustion. 
bellies are now full. They've drunk enough uh, uh, liquid to be able to be satisfied. They lay down. Ruth observes where he lays down. And then she goes over to him. She lays at his feet. And then she undoes, or he, she lifts up the blanket, probably up to his thigh. Okay, again, this is not, ladies, you want to get a man? I'll tell you how to get a man. Okay, that's, that's not dating instructions. Okay, but what we do find here is that she's doing something actually really practical. There's, again, a ton of discussion as to why she lifts up the, the blanket up to the thigh. Okay, all sorts of craziness. People say all sorts of weird things. I just, I don't get it. I do get it, but anyways. Okay, so they lift, lift it up, and it's, it's I, let me illustrate it, okay? Spouses, it's a rhetorical question, so don't, like, put your hand up. Don't even react, because you're going to give it away, okay? But some of you sleep with a person in, or your spouse who does all sorts of crazy stuff at night. Stop laughing, Steve and Lynn. Man. <laughs> Some of you wake up in the morning or in the middle of the night and the blankets are all on one side of the bed. Oh, see, so I got guys, I got guys, not a, it's not going to help your marriage. Don't do it, all right? <laughs> Some of you are that person, okay? I'm that person. I'm going to wrap myself out. There's times in the middle of the night, my wife wakes up and I have all of the blankets. It's all, like, we have a king-size bed and everything is hoarded on my side. Like, like we, you know, you're supposed to have half, you're each half, right? I, like, totally infringe on her half. I'm, like, spread out. I don't know what I do, but I kind of move. I, and all of a sudden, the blankets are, like, under me. It becomes, like, a sleeping bag. Like, that's who I am, right? I think this is what's going on. Remember, it's outside. And so they would have the blanket, and Boaz would have had the blanket over him. And then if she were to lift up the blanket up to his thigh, what happens in the middle of the night? Well, you're, you're, you're full, you've, you've eaten, you've drunk, and you're, you're good to go, you lay down, you fall fast asleep, and you're warm when you fall asleep, and then at night it gets cool. And you're on the threshing floor. What is the whole purpose of the threshing floor? Why did they do that there? Because the, the west wind would come and blow, right? So there's wind coming through, and if that blanket is lifted up to here, what's going to happen in the middle of the night? What do you do, right? You're the, if you're the one who's a, a, not the offender, but the offendee, you know what I'm talking about? The other person that's taking all the blankets, what do you do? In the middle of the night, you're like, you wake up and you're like, right? And you're doing this number, you know what I'm talking about? That's what happens. And what we find in verse 8, as we see again that God can use the decisions of others, we also see, secondly, that God desires for us to walk in integrity before him. And we see this happen. Look at verse 8. So when Boaz, verse 7, had eaten and drunk, his heart was merry. He went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. At midnight, okay, it's, it's, the, it's, the, it's midnight at, 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 uh, in the, at the nighttime. The man was startled, and he turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. Okay, like, this is not a normal day, right? Okay, some of you guys have animals, and, okay, but this is a different situation. Okay, so imagine, picture it. Like, it's obviously humorous in some sense as this story is being relayed. Like, you can almost see the people around the campfire going, what? Naomi told her to do what? Oh, man, this is going to get really good, right? That's what's going on. Like, we read our Bibles. We're like, and then she lifted up the garment, right? She laid uncovered, laid down his feet. Stop it. It's God's word. It's awesome, right? Interact with it. Like, 
not just, don't just read the text, feel the text. It's awesome. And he's laying there, and you can almost like this, right? And then in the middle of the night, it's dark, it's midnight. They, the author tells us what time it is. And he wakes up, and as he wakes up to go grab the blanket and to push it down, he looks down at his feet, and what does he see? He sees a woman. That's the reaction. That is the exact reaction that you should expect in the text. Naomi knew that was what's going to happen. Ruth knew that was going to happen. The text tells us that's what happens. In verse 8, again, Boaz, after he has laid down at midnight, he is startled. The language is so clear. He turns over, and the language of behold is this idea of look. It's like, what? Right? It's like you can't miss it. It's the same language that's used later in, in the same manner when John the Baptist speaks of Christ, and he comes. And he says, behold, look, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And so as we see this, he looks and he's completely shocked at what's going on. He is totally startled as this woman is laying at his feet. And so what does he do next? Well, it's not like a duh. What would you do if that happened? I've got multiple things, right? Maybe some of you, Iowa, you were in Iowa, right? Where all sorts of things are coming out, you're thinking, right? Okay. But in the text, look at what happens, okay? He, who sa he said, who are you? Well, that's a good question. It's not a thing. It's not an it. It's not an animal. It's a person. This is a woman laying there. This is not an everyday occurrence. Boaz has been doing this probably for many, 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 many years. This is a first, okay? <laughs> Wake up in the middle of the night. It's midnight, and there's a woman laying there. So he asks a good question. Who are you? She answered, and listen to how she describes herself. She says, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, may you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first in that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. An interact, inter, interesting interaction happens as this unfolds. What we find within this narrative is that as the story unfolds, and as he asks the question of who she is, she describes her in the manner in which Boaz had actually given her the freedom to, to do and to be, taking on the identity, not just of a widow woman who gets to glean in his field, but he actually has already told her, go with my young women, and, and then he's also instructed the young men, don't glean everything, leave a lot behind, right? And so she elevates her status in her description of herself by not saying, I'm Ruth the Moabite. She says, but I am Ruth, your servant. And then she uses a very interesting illustration. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. This is the first time that we again are introduced the, to this idea in this section of the text of this idea of a kinsman redeemer. She has not made all of the connections, though Naomi has earlier started to make those connections. But she uses that word to speak of the fact that Boaz is one who can take all of the things of her emptiness and restore them. And in all reality, as the text unfolds, she's not actually Ruth's kinsman redeemer. You know whose kinsman redeemer she ultimately is by law? She's actually Naomi's. And so Ruth is actually going on behalf of Naomi. Because Ruth was a part of that line, but it was Naomi's family and all of her sons and husband that were no longer, right? 
And so this is unfolding, and it's unbelievable because the language that is used here when, when um, Ruth comes to, to him and says these things, and then when Boaz responds with the language of, right, uh, this idea of, sp- or rather Ruth says, spread your wings over your servant, this language has already been referenced in the earlier section of Ruth. Ruth uses language of a bird, oftentimes whether a chick or some kind of eagle, or some kind of animal like that, that would come and not only spread its wings over the chicks to cover them, but also use the backside of their feathers to completely enclose. That's this idea. And she says that to Boaz. Now, Boaz is much older. And we know that because in the text, the response of Boaz actually is of shock. And he says to her in verse 10, May you be blessed by Yahweh. May you be blessed by him, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first. And he goes on and describes how. He says, In that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. Right? Ruth it probably is not that very old here. She would have been a woman uh, uh, that would have looked obviously different as a Moabite. She would have been a woman who would have probably still been in a prime age to remarry. She would have been an individual who is attractive, more than likely. And what we find is that Boaz is not even thinking along these lines. And it's actually not a surprise to us as the reader, or maybe as the hearer, because Boaz is what kind of a man? He's a noble man. Boaz is a worthy man. Boaz is a man who walks in integrity. Boaz is not looking to take advantage of Ruth, and he's not giving her all of these benefits in two, in chapter two, because he's trying to like woo her. He's actually surprised at what Ruth is doing. But let me just say this, but Boaz is a man, and we don't get it sometimes, right? Girls, you probably, ladies, may I say girls, ladies, you guys, have prob- you guys probably knew that your husband liked you way before he ever told you, right? It's just a reality. Something, and then some of you, like you have to actually tell your husbands that they should like you, right? Because sometimes we're so dense, right? And this is probably what's going on in one sense, probably because of the age gap. There's a big age gap, and Boaz goes, listen, you are making it very clear that you are willing to marry me. And he's saying, this kindness is far greater. For you could have pursued after a younger man. You could have pursued somebody who was poor or rich. It doesn't matter. But she says, this kindness is even greater And then look at what Boaz does. So it's not just, again, that God uses the decisions of others like he does with Naomi. It's not just that he's using um, Boaz here in the sense as he's walking with integrity, but that integrity is further displayed as we read on in the text. Look there in verse 11. He says, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask. For my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. She has lived among them for some time. They have observed her, her diligence in work, the manner in which she takes care of Naomi. And it's not just that earlier Boaz said, I heard from others about who you are. He says, me and the townsmen, we know the the makeup of you, Ruth. You are a woman of integrity. He goes, we have seen it. And he goes on and doesn't just say that, but in verse 12 he says, and now it is true that I am a redeemer. He knows it, yet there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning, If he will redeem you, good. Let him do it. But if he is not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, he swears upon the name and the the eternality of God, he says, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. It's an interesting interaction as this text is unfolding. 
you see within the context here of the text that not only does Boaz speak of who Ruth is, but he now starts to walk through the process of what it's going to take. And instead of manipulating things to do and to result in what he wanted resulted, you know what he does? He does it in accordance to God's law. Boaz knows he's a redeemer, but Boaz also knows something else. There's someone closer as a redeemer than himself. Now this is again interesting, because even as we're talking through this of not being petrified, we're calling you to the truth that you are to make wise choices, but ultimately commit all of them to the Lord and his goodness. Because we don't know all of the what-ifs, but we can trust that God will use the integrity with which we walk. And sometimes that's the hard part of Christian life, isn't it? Because there's all these things that we have to make choices about, big and small. And like sometimes it's easier just to ignore them or leave them or like sideline them for a time and and not have to deal with it because you just don't want to handle it. And the point of the text is, listen, God has, has called his people and equipped them to be able to move in the direction that he so wills. So don't be petrified. Do what you know is walking in, te- in, in integrity. I've heard it a couple times already, the book uh, referenced but, uh, by Kevin DeYoung, Just Do Something. It, read it. You know, God's Will Found. It's like tiniest little booklet by John MacArthur. It's an older book of determining the will of God. Like, read those kinds of books. They're helpful. They just, again, walk through what God has required of you, what God has called you to by his gospel. But ultimately, as you walk with integrity and walk in the spirit of God, the end result is do the things that you think that God is leading you to do and and, and do something. Don't just sit there and go, okay, I'm going to just wait on some kind of sign from the Lord. You know, we have a bunch of young men who are, or children. Like, some of you guys need to, like, get out of your mom's basement. You need to, like, go find a wife. Like, the women are more intentional with, with their pursuit of, of a, a good relationships, and you're more interested in the next call of duty coming out. Listen, that's not God's will for your life. You're not going to get to heaven and go, man, I wish I spent more time on call of duty. Like, nobody's going to do that, right? It says, again, I can play it. I, I actually start, when I start, used to play Call of Duty, I used to play with my boys, I'd be doing this. Uh, don't shoot me, don't shoot me, don't shoot me. Don't, boom, right, they'd shoot me, okay? But it's like, at the same time, we spend all this time on things that don't matter. Instead of doing the things and moving the kingdom of God forward in the glory of Christ. And what we see with Naomi, no matter how much you want to condemn her, is that this is not a woman who sits idly by. Are all of her decisions perfect? No. But this is a woman who's moved to action. And she moves Ruth to an individual who also will move, be moved to action, but he'll do it with integrity. She doesn't just throw Ruth to the wolves. She, she moves her towards a man who walks uprightly before God. And we see this in the manner in which Boaz responds. And so he tells her to lay down and until morning to stay where she is. Again, we could go into a lot of things. We don't have time to get into it. But look at the third point. Right? God doesn't just use the decisions of others. God doesn't just desire us to walk in integrity before him. But God can use the kindness of others. We find verse 14 through 18 unfold a further sto- the rest of the story. And in verse 14 it says that she laid down at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And so again, this story unfolds. I wish I had time to, to, um, to go through it. But imagine that night of sleep from midnight on. Imagine being Ruth. Imagine being Boaz, right? Putting the blanket down, laying down knowing that Ruth is at the bottom of his feet, right? Laying there going, oh my, 
what kind of conversation do you think Boaz had with the Lord? Lord? <laughs> really? <laughs> well, this was an unexpected turn. We don't know Boaz's marriage or his past situations. We don't know what's going on. We do know he's an upright man. But what kind of conversations would he had would he have had with the Lord? How about Ruth? Okay. Boy, I got a story to tell mom. <laughs> this is interesting. I don't think they probably got a lot of sleep, but in the morning they arise before anybody could recognize the idea is like, you know, coffee, you know what I'm talking about? You wake up in the morning, you don't have your glasses on yet, and you're like looking for coffee. Some of you are like this, you're like, your children can come out, you don't even know what child it is. You don't even know if it is your child, right? <laughs> I, saw, I, saw, I saw someone have a t-shirt, right? Do not talk to me before coffee. <laughs> it's like, but they wake up and before anyone can recognize them, she goes. And Boaz again instructs those that are there that perhaps would have seen, let, no one be, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And in verse 15 it says, he said, bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So he held, he, she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, how did it fare my daughter? I love that. It's like it's so ironic because the language here of uh, Ruth setting out the garment and then putting all of the harvest, uh, harvested grain into the product and then taking it. Uh, we don't know how much it is. There's a varying degrees of how much, but it's a lot. And she's carrying this back, back to her home, okay? Like, and what does Naomi do? She walks in and she says, Naomi says, how did it fare, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her and saying, these six measures of barley he gave to me for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Then Naomi replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is what Boaz does. He's a man of integrity. And as God uses him, he's also a man who will do things in accordance with God's purposes. And as, Bo or as uh, she returns with this massive garment and she asks the question, how did it fare, my daughter? The answer was very obvious. Because if, if it did not go well, what would, it, what would she have come back with? She would have come back with like a dog with his tail between its legs, right? But she doesn't. It was so very obvious. Now, why does the author do this? Why does he tell us this aspect of the narrative that he fills the grain of Ruth and she carries this big bundle back to her mother-in-law? What the author is doing since verse or chapter 1 is walking through the emptying of Naomi, bringing her low. And we see little glimpses. You remember in chapter 2, after Ruth eats, she brings back what was left over so that her mother-in-law could be satisfied with what she was satisfied with. Remember this? And then, and, then, and then she comes back and she's gleaned more than what a typical widow would have gleaned. And now it's obvious, like it's on. And the author's going, look, look at what God does. How did it fare, my daughter-in-law? It was awesome. <laughs> it could not have gone better, mother. Let me tell you what happened. Look at the grain. Look at the God who takes moments that are so empty. And look at what he does for his purposes. When you and I look at our lives and we see moments that are so Mickey Mouse, so broken, so flawed, sometimes by our own sin or by the sin of others, 
If we look through the eyes of the temporal, all we will see is the brokenness. And all we will do is get bitter. And all we'll do is be petrified. And we won't want to move. But the gospel of Christ has set us free so that we are no longer those who find identity in stuff or in people or in circumstances. We have found our identity in the Son. And as we have been singing, when he sets us free, we are free indeed. And when this God is at work, who's not, in, in, not just not interested in getting involved, he is interested, and so he gets himself involved in the big parts of our lives, in the medium parts of our lives, and in the insignificant ice cream parts of our lives. Okay, I'm not saying ice cream is insignificant, but you get what I'm saying, right? He's involved in all of it. And we have seen time and time and time again, through the big and the small, that his hand is ever faithful, and he's moving all of these things over for his purposes. But the question has to be asked, then why in the world does it take so little to derail you and me? Like, it's, it, it could be the dumbest thing. We get mad at our children when we look at them bickering. We're like, why are you fighting over, like, that M&M? There's, like, a whole other bag of M&Ms here, right? But we're like that. We look through that temporal lens, and instead of looking with the eternal eyes, we pursue what our flesh wants. And as a result, we miss oftentimes the fingerprint of God and his handiwork and his, his design for our lives. And so applicationally, I, I wrote these on your notes. You can look at them as we end our time this evening. How do you run ahead of God when circumstances are oftentimes not going your way? Do you do that? Boaz doesn't. Boaz tells Ruth, wait till the morning. Boaz says, I'll resolve it. Go back to your mother-in-law. Naomi says at the end of the text, she says, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. She's like, watch. Watch what Boaz does. This is a man of integrity. And if he told you he is going to redeem you or let that other man redeem you, watch. He's not going to rest. Okay, we may not be great at a lot of things, men. We can't multitask. But by God's grace, we can fix our minds on one thing. And when we do, and we really, really do focus it, we can get some stuff done. Well, we can get that thing done. That's Boaz, okay? Another applicational question. What are some specific indicators that you're running ahead of God? You can examine by the gospel those things, the things that oftentimes show that you're not interested in waiting on him. And then what, parts, what part should the word have in giving you perspective on your circumstances? And so as you work through this, the truth that I really want to draw us again to is that as the Puritans oftentimes used to say, we work because God has worked. And so we are to put our hand diligently to the things that he has called us to do by his gospel. So may God aid us to do that. Do not be people who allow our lives to just be petrified because we're scared to move but to know that our sovereign God is in control of all things and he's moving these things for his intended purposes and that our story fits within his and he wants to use us. So by his grace, let's do this. Even if it's scary. Father, aid us to not be those who live in accordance with our own purposes, to not be those who are petrified, 